Hello and welcome to the Hill's Digital Health Podcast. The Hill is the digital health transformation catalyst based at Oxford University Hospitals. We're working to help the NHS make the most of digital innovation. We do this in three ways. We work with innovators to help them develop their digital health ideas and products and make them relevant to the NHS. We work with clinical teams to understand needs, engage them in digital innovation, increase digital skills and adopt innovation. And finally, we collaborate with many partners, bringing together multiple organisations to form a digital health ecosystem. You're listening to The Hill series on clinical entrepreneurs. My name is Megan Morris-Carter, Director of The Hill, and I'm joined here today by Myra Malik, who's Consultant Anaesthetist at Hillingdon Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust and co-founder of Respiratrain. Welcome, Myra. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Megan, and I'm delighted to be part of the Hills uh, podcast programme. I'm very lucky and very privileged, so thank you. Let's kick off by talking a little bit more about Respiratrain. Can you tell me a bit about what problem it solves? So Respiratrain is, well, we describe it as a complete respiratory solution that deals with the muscle atrophy that takes place when patients become mechanically ventilated. So um, each day a patient is mechanically ventilated, they can lose up to 6% of their muscle mass, particularly of the main muscle of respiration, which is the diaphragm. And this is a solution that addresses that muscle atrophy um, in the hopes and in the, uh, in the hopes that it aids their weaning from the mechanical ventilator more rapidly, so thus reducing their exposure to complications and also importantly reducing the cost of having patients mechanically ventilated. And that must be a, a pretty hot topic at the moment with COVID and the pandemic. I mean, that's presumably attracted quite a lot of interest over the last year and a half. It has. I mean, we only really started working on this this time, probably early, late last year. Um, so, yes, things have happened quite rapidly and we are growing and expanding. Um, so, yes, there is a lot of interest, but also those people that would probably be most interested have been quite busy, like myself, in the last year and a half dealing with the pandemic. So, yes, there is a lot of interest. So what, what made you start thinking about Respiratrain and deciding to set it up as a business? So the project has initially been spun out from our roles at the University of Oxford. So in 2020, I became one of the Global Insight Fellows um, doing some research in needs-led innovation. So the programme brought together uh, three people from around the world. So one of my colleagues was from Senegal, um, West Africa, was a lawyer. Um, my colleague and co-founder of Recipe Train is uh, Indian by background, but studied in the US and had worked in a startup in um, Kenya. So, and we were, and he's an engineer by background, and we were brought together to form a multidisciplinary team to do needs-led innovation in Senegal, West Africa. Um, and the process takes us out of our normal working life to be immersed in this clinical environment for a period of time. Um, undertaking observations and then looking at the problems as that multidisciplinary team and diving deeper into why those problems exist and using the problem to lead us to the solution. How did we go from what observing in Senegal, West Africa to rescue train? One of the observations we uh, came across, we came, went to the intensive care environment there and we saw these beautiful brand new ventilators still in their packaging in the corner and they were gathering dust. And in our process of understanding why that was, we spoke to different healthcare providers and clinicians, and they said they were beautiful ventilators, but there was no training that came with them on how to use them. So they'd been there for a while, and they simply didn't have the skills or expertise to use such complicated pieces of equipment. 
So from that, we realised that actually in a low resource setting, what you need is very simple, straightforward types of ventilation and equipment that can also be easily serviced by the local community. So you had to understand what skill set was available. Um, and some of this digital technology was just a bit too complicated for that environment and couldn't be serviced. So um, that led us to looking at other forms of mechanical ventilation. And then COVID kind of hit at the same time. And we realized the entire world was then looking at uh, forms of mechanical ventilations that could be translated into lower resource settings. So we then realized that actually those people that go onto ventilators need to come off ventilators as well. Um, so that took us to the other end of that problem of mechanical ventilation, which led us down the route of respiratory train and recognizing that actually that problem has existed before COVID um, and has been exacerbated by COVID, but will continue to exist after COVID leaves us, but not too long because obviously respiratory train will come onto the market to solve it. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, see, there's a lot of things there, Myra. Um, and it's a fantastic story, such a, a, a fantastic experience for you, I'm sure. And then also so many steps along the pathway to actually getting to your final business idea. And I think that's quite common, isn't it, really, that, that you might observe a particular problem or have experience of a particular problem yourself in the clinical setting. But often what is actually commercially viable or what's actually a solution that's that's relevant and, and needs to be put into the marketplace is quite different. Yeah, I, for me, it was recognising that because we were such a diverse team, we brought that diversity of thinking to the problem. Um, so when I was observing the problem, my colleagues were, we, we thought we were seeing the same thing. But when we had our discussions, we realised we were viewing the problem, that particular problem from multiple different perspectives. And that gave us a real depth of understanding. So I recognize you can see problems on different depths. So you can take it on a superficial level, but you need to delve deeper. And in the process, the biodesign process, you take that time to delve deeper into the problem. And doing that leads you to a solution. And the idea is that the solution is a better fit for the problem because you've generated a deeper understanding of that problem. So recognising as an anaesthetist, yes, I've spent a long time ventilating patients and extubating them and understanding the weaning process. I've only viewed it from really one type of perspective and being with my colleagues and sort of taking a more research type approach to it now, I've had to delve much deeper into it, into the physiology, um, the pathophysiology and the science behind why the weaning process is what it is. I remember when I first came across your concept, actually, I was fascinated because I had no idea that this was going to be a problem. But once you'd said it, then it made perfect sense that that would be the case. One of my ex-colleagues from The Hill, um, we're very fond of of learning from and reflecting on things that we've done and making sure that, you know, next time it's always better. And one of the things that she used to very much like doing is something called the five whys, which you may have come across where, you know, every time you get an answer to the question why you ask why again. And I think, uh, I think it's very powerful, actually very simple, but very powerful in terms of, as you say, delving beneath the surface of a problem and very yeah. much kind of getting to the, the meat of that problem and perhaps starting to see that there might be other routes out of it which you wouldn't have seen if you hadn't have gone that deep into the problem. Yeah and I think that's where as a clinician having been on the receiving end of solutions to problems and so when they don't necessarily fit into our systems and processes of working it can be a real upheaval to adopt them which is a real shame because some of the solutions if they'd been tweaked in slightly different ways and maybe had clinicians involved at a much earlier stage 
would have meant that their uptake of them would have been perhaps a bit more. And that for me is one of the key things that we understand, not just as a doctor perspective, but, you know, our physiotherapy colleagues, our nursing colleagues, those that are going to be by the bed space for a prolonged period of time. How would this solution impact their working life and how can we integrate it into their ways of working and not add any more burden to um, which is already a very stressful job? Absolutely. I think it's really important to understand what the what the pathway is at the moment and how what you're doing is going to either modify or, or fit into that pathway because behavioural change is one of the, the biggest challenges, I think, to adoption of any technology. And sometimes it's necessary, obviously, to change the way you do things, but I think it's an incredibly hard thing for human beings to do. And therefore, if you can find a way of making that change easy or, or very small, then that has much better chances of adoption and much better chances of being used in, in the clinical workplace. Yeah, and I think recognising that you might want to trade off sort of the, the snazziness of a solution because actually it becomes too complicated to be used. Um, you And then allow, uh, yeah, and do that trade-off so you can then get it into the hands of the person who's going to use it much more rapidly. Yes, well, I guess that's really important in places like Senegal as well, where, you know, clearly they had the equipment, but then didn't actually manage to train the people to use it and therefore were still lacking that that immediate response that they needed at the time. Yeah, so that helped us understand that actually... The solution doesn't, it's only a solution if it actually gets used. Um, And part of designing that solution is understanding how your user is going to use it and does it meet their skills, does it meet their requirements and does it, as I said, fit into their working ways or can you amend their way of working to a point where it's not causing them too much upheaval. I love that that quote, Myra, that it, it's only a solution if it can be used. I think that's hugely important. I want to go back also to your co-founders, because obviously, or your co-founder, because you, you came from pretty different backgrounds, obviously, um, the programme brought you together. Um, what, what do you think is the value of that sort of multidisciplinary setup in a startup? I think... In any environment, and particularly in a startup, is that diversity of thinking. So we have such different perspectives and experience and backgrounds, and we bring that together in that environment. And then part of it is learning to be that team, so communicate those differences and perspective and share that knowledge and expertise. So we build a solution together that brings together all our skills and expertise so it really solves the problem rather than as I said just build a snazzy solution. It's one of the things that I often teach when thinking about teams in startups is that you need a diversity of thought um, but then you need a focus on a shared vision and if you don't have both the diversity and then the agreement on what it is you're trying to achieve, then that can be very hard. Because if you just have diversity, then you end up going off in different directions and things don't work out for your startup. And if you have a shared vision, but actually you're all from very similar backgrounds, you may be a bit blindsided by certain aspects of the the, the startup experience, whether that's through raising investments or, or looking at the market or trying to match your product to the market, you might not fully understand what could be done differently because you haven't got that diversity of thinking in the team. I think you're absolutely right. And I think the key thing is finding that balance where you're, I think they call it storming and norming, Um, the right kind of storming that's in a constructive way. I mean, we are huge 
I'm hugely respectful and sort of enamored, you know, my colleague is amazing in what he does and what he's managed to achieve. So, you know, huge amount of respect. And we both come at this problem because we both are passionate about the solution. And that storming phase probably was made easier because we were so immersed in what we were doing in Senegal. I mean, we had to live together, we worked together, we ate together, you know, it, you know, when and you're in an environment where actually we had to rely very much on each other because it's Senegal is a French speaking um, country, main language is French, and my French is not that good. So we had to learn to speak the language, um, different culture, um, you know, how do we we had to learn how to top up our mobile phones using sort of the technologies that they have available, you know, pay for the electricity, top that up. So it was a very, very different way of living and working. And, you know, it sort of forced us to have to rely on each other hugely. I think a lot of people say that uh, starting a startup with someone is a little bit like getting married to them. You know, you, you, you do sort of end up a lot of time in each other's company and doing a lot of things together and and also making some pretty big decisions together as well. And so you do very much have to have that relationship first, I think, yeah. build that relationship as part of your development of the startup. Yeah. And I think, you're abs- again, absolutely right. And it's, you know, having the those types of conversations are not ones that you probably have in everyday life, certainly not in a business sense or in a work sense, but you can't, you have to have them in startup life because there's, there's not many of you um, and you're having to make all the decisions and choices and, you know, that have huge impact. So my colleagues relocated from the U S is now based in the UK. So, you know, these are big life decisions. So being in that environment, you have to learn good communication skills also be able to articulate, be able to constructively give feedback to each other about what's being done or what's being said or what's not being done and what's not being said. So yeah, it does bring out its own challenges. But each time we sort of overcome something, we move forward and that's fantastic. So what have been the, the biggest challenges to, uh, to setting up this business? I think COVID has brought its own challenges. You know, I'm full-time NHS clinician, so I have to take into account, you know, the current the uncertainty with our working life for that. Relocating, my colleagues relocated to a different country, um, not being able to sort of work together, but having to work remotely, you know, um, learning how to divide our time, um, you know, what is our priority? What are our focuses? Being in a startup, you, you know very well that, you know, there's so many multiple things that need to be done almost simultaneously, but you just need to find what is the priority because your time is so limited. So COVID has had an impact, but in some ways, I guess it's taught us the skills, you know, how to communicate even better because we spend so little time physically together because of all the lockdowns and things how to prioritise what's important and what can wait until um, another time for us to address. And actually, you know, within ourselves, learning actually what do we really want from this and what are we able to commit and contribute to this to push this up, um, to push this forward. You're obviously on the Hills Market Access Accelerator and you're also a clinical entrepreneur. Um, What what values do do programmes like this bring to you, do you think? I think it's recognising that programs like this bring you together with like-minded people um, and in some ways finding your tribe. Everyone's story on the program, The Hill in particularly, will be different and people will hear that in the podcast, the different stories. People have taken their own journey, their own pathway, but there's something to learn from it. 
And especially when you hear the difficulties and the challenges, to know that you're not alone, that other people have experienced that before you, so you can learn from them. There's obviously the mentoring and coaching, and that's been hugely influential. And finding the right mentors is very, very important if you're doing something like this, especially because you accept there'll be ups and downs and there'll be um, times where you probably just want to give up um, and finding the right mentor who just helps you sort of overcome that and helps you see perhaps a different perspective to the problem you're facing. You might think it's insurmountable, but there's usually a way around it. And then obviously the networks. So, you know, the legal, the investing, the link with the hospital for Hill, particularly, you know, that ready access to clinicians, um, is that I mean those are the things that I found hugely beneficial from the hill I think it is quite important isn't it to build that community and one of the things we very much try and do is is to sort of bring together people who wouldn't necessarily meet them each other in the course of their daily work because if they're not an entrepreneur they won't have come across investors before or they won't have come across business mentors so they won't have have met people who might be helpful to them in, in more of a business sense rather than necessarily a clinical sense And even I think for clinicians, I think you've illustrated quite well that just because you have one single lived experience of a particular problem or a particular issue doesn't mean to say that you can't benefit from other clinicians' experiences and access to other people. Yeah, I I think it's hugely important that you recognise that your experience is a perspective of a problem, just like... Uh, helping on patients they have a perspective on the problem that they're experiencing their relatives will have an experience of the uh, the problem as well and being able to sort of bring that all together to give you a greater depth of understanding that problem is hugely you know beneficial obviously respiratory training is, is hugely relevant to the current situation that a lot of people are experiencing and of course part of being successful in anything like a, a startup or a, a proposition of any kind is the timing of it isn't it very much hitting it at the right moment when people are interested and when things can move forward do you feel that that's been the case for you with your development of respiratory has covid sort of come at the right time in a sense or has has respiratory come at the right time for covid or has it presented more challenges i think yes respiratory has come at the right time so i think it would be easy to say that because we're developing a device that's for that could be easily translated into help dealing with the COVID crisis. But the problem becomes actually that it's very early stage, but also those people that would help validate and support its development are also very, very busy at the moment. And having come back into clinical practice, having been away for a significant period of last year, coming into a workforce that is tired um, and needing a lot of, um, sort of support to get back into now we're dealing with a backlog I'm very conscious of not burdening my colleagues with sort of this great idea or this great solution that we're working on and taking away from their ability to recuperate from what's been happening so it's just a catch-22 at the moment I think it's often the case isn't it with an innovation that's for healthcare in that you know, healthcare services across the world have a very large amount of work to do and, and a limited set of resources to do it with. And so any innovation has to take place on top of that. And that can be quite challenging, even if in the longer term, it'll, it'll provide benefits to the services. Yeah. And I think when I go to work, I get reminded every day as to the reason why, 
And like I said, when you come home from a long day at work and you've got papers you need to read or investors you need to meet or, you know, uh, stuff for the recipe train to keep it moving forward, it gives you that added sort of um, enthusiasm and it reminds you of why you're doing it in the first place. And that, I suppose, is I'm grateful to have that opportunity. I hope you'll make a, a big difference to a lot of patients, Mara. I'm, I'm sure you will. So it, it's definitely worth doing, I think. Oh, definitely, definitely. But yes, having um, the resilience to keep going, I think that's probably one of the toughest challenges. So where are you going to, to go next with the business? You know, you've mentioned that it is quite an early stage concept. It's obviously a relatively complex or, or certainly, certainly um, invasive kind of approach. And therefore, you're probably going to need quite a, a lot of evidence to back it up. So we are building a team. So if anyone's interested, please do hopefully get in touch some way, somehow. That's my ask. And then obviously funding. We're in the process of applying grants, looking for those that want to come on board financially as well. So we're just open to being approached by people. But in the meantime, we will carry on as we are uh, and persevering. Finally, Myra, I know that you're already very generous with your time in helping out other early stage entrepreneurs, even though you're still in the process yourself. What sort of advice do you give to them? What would be your sort of top three tips or, or whatever to, uh, to leave them with at the end of this podcast? I think if you are interested in solving problems, then get involved, find a way. There's always a way. Be interested in this problem. Want to solve the problem and have that as your main focus. I, you see lots of people interested in developing a solution and they almost become sort of fixated on the solution. And sometimes when you work through that with them, the solution, as I said before, doesn't always fit the problem. So I would always be driven by the want and the desire to solve this particular type of problem. That's a, a brilliant place to end, Myra. And I fully support your, your thought there that, that needs-led innovation is hugely important and understanding those needs in a great deal of depth and really getting to the bottom of how multiple different people from different disciplinary backgrounds understand and, and relate to that problem really then helps you to create solutions that can genuinely change the lives of clinicians and the lives of patients. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you ever so much, Myra, for joining us on the podcast. It's, uh, it's been fantastic to, to hear your journey. And I wish you the very best for Rescue Train and your clinical work going forwards. Thank you very much, Megan. It's been wonderful. You've been listening to Myra Malik, who is the co-founder of Respitrain and also a consultant anaesthetist at Hillington Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. If you'd like to know more about Myra or any of the other entrepreneurs who are on the Hills Market Access Accelerator, do reach out to the Hills team or see us on our website at www.thehilloxford.org for more information.